Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Deloff. Dean, you know what I like? I know a few things you like, but why don't you tell me what thing in particular? Specifically, yeah, yeah no, specifically I meant the Bible. I like right, the Bible. Right, right, sure, yeah. I did know that. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> That's really great to hear. You're always saying that. Every time I call you up, you're like, uh, <laughs> let me give you a passage from the good book I've been reading today. You know, um, Christ- do you know Christian comedian Mark Bowery? <laughs> Who doesn't? Yeah. I went bananas for that guy, for sure. Yeah, for sure. He's a Christian comedian, first and foremost, but he's also the author of the song, Mary, Did You Know? I didn't know that, actually. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's incredible. I actually, okay, well, whatever. I'll, I'll go ahead and say this. I grew up watching, like, this cassette tape of him, for whatever reason. <laughs> that I, We had that in my house, and I thought it was funny. <laughs> and uh, one time I did see him perform his his uh, Christian comedy act and also sing Mary, Did You Know? at uh, Olivet Nazarene University. And uh, it was a really wild time. Anyways, Mark Lowry has this joke that I do like, and I think it's pretty funny. And uh, he says, um, you know what, everybody? Uh, I started calling my bed the word so that when people call me on the phone really early in the morning, I can tell them, hey, I can't talk right now. I'm still in the word. Mm-hmm. And so because it's going to it sounds like he's still reading the Bible. But he's actually sleeping. So that's kind of that's pretty funny. I think that is pretty funny. I like that one. That is that good Christian dad humor. That I, <laughs> I think it's even funnier because I did explain it, and yeah. uh, that's what makes it really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I bet Mark has to explain it a lot, too, so that's fine. Well, when it comes to things like, uh, I don't know, morality, ethics, politics, spirituality, <laughs> whatever, Christianity has a lot of sources of like authority on those topics, right? You got Christian tradition. You got sort of like the, the long tradition of Christians doing like philosophy. Stand-up comedy. You got great pastors like Mark Lowry yeah. out there telling you his funny jokes. But also you have another big source of Christian authority in what my fi- my favorite thing, the Bible. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you're right about that, Matt. Um, the Bible, it's a big book. Uh, have you read it all the way through, Matt, yourself? Ah, I couldn't be bothered. I've read the good parts. And then the bad parts, I've skipped. All right, well, I read it. Uh, two times when I was a teenager, um, and when I say I read it, I mean I mean I kept flipping the pages, <laughs> hoping for the best. <laughs> um, but it's a weird book if you ever try to read it all the way through. There's a lot of wild stuff that goes on in there, uh, and especially for maybe more conservative types of Christianity, uh, like you all know, evangelicalism, fundamentalism, or whatever else, the Bible is this kind of central authority for parsing out what the Christian approach to a particular topic might be. And I think for a long time, my experience with those kinds of movements has kind of turned me off, maybe even to thinking about the Bible. But, yeah. you know, in the last year or so, I guess actually maybe since uh, we started reading the Gospel and Solentinami, so more than that, uh, I, I can't, I'm starting to come around. I'm like, there's a lot of cool stuff actually going on in this <laughs> book, and I want to find out the coolest parts of it. I think that's my new thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, growing up sort of in a weird evangelical church, I mean, that's kind of like the the rule of everything, right? Um, what does the Bible have to say about, I don't know, like miracles or wealth or getting married or whatever, right? People are always asking those questions and trying to like hunt and peck their way through this giant ass book um, that's written over like <laughs> millennia <laughs> and trying to find the answer to these questions. Um but here's the thing that uh, that that you need to know about people who think the Bible is super important. The Bible is a big a big collection of books. It's written through like this giant sort of like ancient time period, and when it comes down to exactly what it means, people don't know. <laughs> people have like they miss the nuance. They don't understand the cultural context. There's all kinds of history going on, and uh, it's a really tough book to read. Right. It's especially true when it comes to, like, really nuanced pieces of the Bible. Uh, For example, like Jesus' parables. Um, Throughout the Gospels, Jesus tells the disciples and others who are listening, hanging out with Jesus, parables (laughs) that are supposed to, like, impart some kind of deep wisdom about the world, right? Like, you get kinds of, like, really interesting but confusing things about, like, you know, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Or uh, the kingdom of God is like workers who are in the field who all end up making the same amount of money regardless of how much they worked. And, you know, um, if you're honest with yourself, you read these parables and you think, what does this, any, what does this mean? What could this possibly mean? I don't even know, right? Like, um, we think about them allegorically. We think about them literally. We have no idea. That's, it's why, just like, uh, that's why everyone loves the Good Samaritan because Jesus just tells you what that one means. <laughs> that's true. That one's a good one because there's no uh, – th- there's less less <laughs> ambiguity, right? Um, 
So what I'm trying to say here, Dean, is that the Bible is a very big, complicated book. And because it was written a long time ago, we just like kind of don't get it a lot of times. And, you know, sometimes we, we get it, you know, in spite of not being able to understand the historical context or whatever. But um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's complicated. And if you don't really know the background, sometimes you miss what a parable is about or what a per- certain, you know, passage is about. To get to the bottom of that particular problem, at least, you know, very partially, we took some time this week to read a really neat book called Parables as Subversive Speech by William Herzog. What it's doing is it's kind of going through the parables in the gospel and it's um, it says like, you know, you read this, you read these parables and you think you know what they're about. You think that they're, you know, an allegory or a metaphor um or or something like that. But actually, there's something different going on in them. There's something actually way more historical um, about the setting and the place and the characters of these that I think a lot of Christians uh, contemporaneously kind of just skip over or don't understand. So in this episode, we're going to talk through Herzog's approach to the parables uh, and to history. And we're going to talk about reading the Bible and like why it's hard. And we're going to talk about some of the historical specifics about what thinking about the Bible, you know, more historically looks like in practice. Maybe uh, one interesting thing about this to note right off the bat is, as we were just talking about, right, there's this kind of uh, weird fixation on the Bible by conservative Christians. But the irony there is, as you were saying, we we read the Bible and we have no idea what it means. And you go to church and you kind of wait for the pastor to tell you, right, to create a... Um, some kind of sermon space where you can figure out what it means. And what's so fascinating is when you read this book by Herzog, uh, at least as I've been reading him go through all these parables, some of which I'm familiar with and some of which I don't remember at all, uh, it's really interesting to kind of be like, whoa, if I actually really wanted to understand the Bible, I probably would have done this work. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I would have done homework to figure out, you know, what's the historical material stuff going on in the air uh, and in my experience, that's not really what I got in evangelical or Protestant circles. Not to say nobody does that, but it wasn't my own experience. So the it's an interesting sort of performative irony, maybe, that, you know, you have this person, Herzog, who is not a conservative biblical scholar, but is doing all this work to try to figure out, like, what's really going on in these texts. And conversely, people for whom the Bible is like the ultimate book with the ultimate meaning can't really be bothered to like do the homework because I guess if they did, maybe they would have to find themselves committing to other things, (laughs) other, other politics or other positions that uh, might not go so well with becoming the, you know, the spiritual mouthpiece of the Republicans or something like that. Yeah. You know, I think that's true. Um, At the same time though, I also think like the historical reading that we get from Herzog is cool and super fascinating and I think really illuminating. Um, But it's also not like the only reading I think that makes sense either. Yeah. Yeah. Of uh, course. I don't know. Language is complicated. Meaning is complicated. And the Bible is complicated. Um, all of these things are true. Uh, but also, you know, I think that the it's not to say this is like the one authoritative reading of the Gospels, but I think these are really illustrative and like educational and pretty important still um, readings of the Gospels. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you if you hear us say something on this podcast, and you're like, well, I think I like it the other way better. Um, through another interpretive framework or whatever, then that's cool too. You should you should be in that. <laughs> just I should, yeah, let it remain open for you. I suppose it can for mean a sure, lot of things yeah. at once. Yeah, I should clarify too that Herzog also doesn't want like he mm. actually says in the book that he's trying to avoid kind of creating like a one single ultimate authoritative interpretation. He's like trying to break that up a little bit. So yeah, uh, yeah I don't want to like pretend that he's uh, giving you the the one true source of all the history that's going on. And now you can finally truly understand the parables, you know, and their secret. <laughs> that's meaning. Right. But yeah, anyway, oh, it was just, I guess uh, what I find so fascinating about it is, um, you know, I, in all my years of being extremely concerned and anxious about what the Bible said and what it meant for me in my life, um, never did I ever do this homework anyway. <laughs> so that's just kind of an interesting, I don't know, insight, I guess, into people who are doing that kind of work like Herzog. Yeah, totally. Okay, so on this podcast, you know what we do. We're going to read a book, but before we're going to do something philosophical and weird for a second. Um, That's that's the trend on this podcast. Uh, Before we get to the content, we're going to talk about philosophy in some kind of very weird way. So, okay, Um, I think it is worth talking about language and meaning and communication like a little bit meta before we kind of get to it, because I think that if we set it up this way, maybe like the bigger conversation about like being open to different types of meaning um, might make more sense in the end. So I guess let's start with a really obscure philosopher who is not French. So if you're keeping (laughs) score, 
Here you go. He's <laughs> he's Brazilian and also like Polish, I think. If I think that's correct. I think Czechoslovakian. Uh that could be. Maybe I don't know. Uh anyways, Wilm Flusser, um, one of my faves. He is a philosopher of the media. He's super fascinating. His family did escape the Holocaust and went to Brazil and um he led a very like interesting life because of it. Flusser is not a Christian. Um, he is Jewish, but uh, I think just just the same. He has like a lots of very interesting insights. I think on Christian theology and on everything. <laughs> He's super fascinating. <laughs> He's like not an academic at all. He was like a guy that worked in a camera repair shop and like wrote about philosophy and cameras. And it's amazing. He's great. He has a great book about squids. Listen, this guy's all over the place. I can't even characterize him in a, in a really straightforward way. What I want to talk about with regards to Willem Flusser is that he wrote this essay that I think is really fantastic called The Gesture of Speaking. And what's fascinating about it is that he's trying to talk about, like, the phenomenology of speaking. Or what does it mean to talk or communicate, right? A, a very, like, um, a very small question, but that is pretty profound when you kind of get into it. And the way that he starts this essay out, I think, is really cool. He says that people, they're not like birds. Uh, people are are born with, you know, not like birds. Birds can just chirp right out of the egg, right? They can start chirping, and, and the parent birds know exactly what that means, and um, they don't have to sort of, like, learn to uh, vocalize words or kind of conceptualize meaning. They don't have to learn the, like, um, the big rules around abstract ideas about, like, language and communication, uh, like humans do. So humans and birds are different in that way. Uh, humans have to learn like the technology of speaking and communication. Birds, they just can kind of like chirp. And that's great. Great for birds. But to make matters more complicated, um, we learn about these rules. Uh, we learn about the rules of language and communicating in the midst of like other historical events, like deep cultural traditions, shifting power dynamics, popular culture. <laughs> All these kinds of things, right? Like, for example, if I said Dean was a quirked up white boy who was goaded by the sauce, you would all know exactly what I'm talking about, right? But you only I know- definitely do. <laughs> yeah, of course. But it only it, it would make no sense to somebody like 10 years ago or even like a, one year ago or somebody who's never been on TikTok. Or 10 years from now. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of cultural nuance in that sentence uh, about uh, <laughs> what it means to be goaded with the sauce. <laughs> But we know. But anyways, all of this is the case because as uh, a different sort of uh, philosopher or cultural theorist, uh, Stuart Hall, he argues that communication ends up being a matter of what he calls encoding and decoding. And he has like this really helpful diagram about like what that like means, but doesn't translate very well into like a podcast because it's, you know, visual. (laughs) But the basic (laughs) idea is that like if you want to communicate something, you have to like encode that intention, that meaning, that like idea in your brain. Um, you have to encode it into some kind of like package that people can then uh, on the other end decode and take apart and understand and like, you know, act on. So when you do encode something, you know, when when you say, as we all do, Dean is a quirked up white boy who's good with the sauce, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're putting your own sort of like history, your cultural context, your um, understanding or cultural literacy into it. You know, you're putting your like political context into it. Maybe not political context, but you could if you said something different, perhaps. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, you have to when you when you're saying something, you're also saying it within a particular like medium, right? Whether it's speech or an email or a TikTok or whatever. So whenever you talk, all of these different kinds of levels of things go into it. And what I'm trying to say in all of this kind of like rambly philosophical things about uh, speech and communication is that communicating is something that's super commonplace and we take it for granted all the time. But it's also an extremely complex confluence of hyper-specific moments that we live in. And they're all just kind of stacked on top of each other. Uh, Stuart Hall calls these our like structures of knowledge. So like when we say something and we phrase it in a particular way and we use, you know, an idiom or a metaphor or uh, a particular like mimetic structure or something like I just did, um, you know, we're doing that based on our life experience and sort of like what we know. So I guess I'm saying all this because I, I think that something's happening in the Bible that's kind of similar especially with the parables. And I think that that'll make a lot more sense when we start talking about um, what's going on in Herzog's book that like, you know, when we read the parables in the gospels, we're hearing them with our own, you know, demented 2022 brains. Um, mm-hmm. We're hearing them in the ways that like our pastors have taught, th- taught us to hear them. We hear them along the uh, cultural ideas that we interpret them through. Right. Like if you're, I mean, you know, a book that we talk about constantly is the gospel in Sol and Taname. And 
it's a great example because the folks in that book are reading the Gospels in light of the Nicaraguan Revolution, right? They're reading them in, in the light of a, a revolutionary situation. So, of course, whenever they read anything in the Bible, it's like, well, this is communist. Uh, this is a communist idea. <laughs> Uh, but whereas, you know, other people read it in different different contexts with different structures of knowledge and you end up, you know, with some extremely bonkers, different interpretations. Um, so, yeah, I guess like that's what I'm trying to say here is that when we are reading things, we're kind of bringing ourselves to the text and um, that's fine. It's not wrong to do so because it's like really the only way that we can kind of live and move in the world. But uh, it is worth knowing what we're doing when we're doing it. So I think that's maybe a, a good note to start off on. Yeah, and at the same time, like uh, on the other end, right, when Jesus is saying a parable, he is saying a parable also with all kinds of structures of knowledge right. and saying it to people who have their own kind of structures of knowledge. So when Jesus chooses agrarian metaphors, for example, um, as opposed to, I don't know, metaphors that rest on having the experience in the Agora or whatever, <laughs> like, you know, it's it's because he's addressing a particular crowd. And I think that is the perennial challenge of of Christians in other times and places, right? Trying to um, get your mind into the head of a person who would be an initial hearer of Jesus's stories or Jesus's ministry and message, and then doing that long decoding process, too, of trying to be like, well, what does that even mean? Is that even transferable to my own situation? And the pressure that you get from something like evangelicalism is uh, the pressure is to say, yes, every single thing that Jesus said matters uniquely to you because it's all universal. Uh, no matter how he said it or who he said it to, it's sort of universally applicable in the same way across time and space, right? Uh, but what's really kind of challenging is trying to figure out what is actually the particular. What, what's particular about Jesus talking to a handful of people in this region at this time, at this time of like the you know, the sort of uh, rhythm of, of the Jewish year and so on and so forth, right? All those kinds of things factor in. And if you don't have that at the front of your brain and you you can't unless you're a Bible scholar, then uh, you're kind of left like basically doing your best and then just kind of uh, hoping for the best <laughs> at the end, right? And, and it can't really be otherwise. And I don't think uh, it's necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just sort of a recognition of, you know, human finitude maybe or something like that. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. It's human finitude, not like, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not like malicious or something. I think people don't yeah. necessarily come to the text wanting to wanting to read it incorrectly, but uh, because of our limited, I don't know, structures of knowledge and our brains and, and what we know, yeah, it's always imperfect. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and maybe that's the, I guess that's the point I was trying to circle around that I couldn't, that I forgot <laughs> as I was talking. It's imperfect and it's fine. Yeah, and, and evangelicalism is like the, it sets you up on an impossible task, mm -hmm. right? Which is to, uh, to get it perfect, to get it absolutely right. And if you don't, then you're failing for some reason or other, whether it's ignorance or sin or I don't know, whatever else. Um, but the point is, it, you know, it couldn't be otherwise. You yeah. <laughs> you have to accept defeat and then also find out a way to kind of celebrate that defeat and be like, what an exciting situation. I can't be right. So I can maybe figure out all kinds of more interesting ways to be wrong or something yeah. like that. And in fact, in this Herzog book, I think what you'll find is that like, um, like you would never know any of this stuff. And um, there's maybe some type of like, a feeling of freedom when you kind of learn the historical background because it's like you're struggling to figure out how this parable might uh, apply to your life because like it's not about your life in the least <laughs> it's like right. about something that's very right. different from your life <laughs> and you know maybe there's something interesting to pull out from it and that's cool and that's like you know the interpretive work that you have to do but like uh it's not your fault <laughs> that you don't you don't relate directly <laughs> to what was happening with like a peasant uprising and whatever um in like ancient palestine Exactly. So I think maybe one way that we could get into this is talking a bit about how Herzog himself sets up his kind of reading method, um, because it's actually very interesting. Uh, and then we could pick one parable out of the many parables to sort of focus on and, and talk through. So first things first, in terms of method, Herzog, he is a smart guy, right? He's a professional, a professional Bible knower, if you will. <laughs> I will. Thank and, you. And uh, <laughs> um if you have had a chance to become a professional Bible knower in some way or other, for instance, I went to a Bible college and took a lot of Bible classes about the Bible. Um, you'll know that there are all kinds of uh, conversations in the scholarly, scholarly world about what to do with the Bible. 
And we gesture toward them sometimes on this podcast. So, for example, the example I always like to give is the Jesus Seminar, this kind of moment where all these scholars got together and tried to decide for, you know, what, like, what are the things that Jesus definitely said for sure? And what are the things that were kind of embellished or a bit fantastical, right? And they had this whole voting process to figure it out. Uh, there's this kind of like, especially in the 1800s and 1900s, this big dialogue around trying to figure out what the Bible even is in scholarship. And then that feeds into all these theological debates, too, about uh, fundamentalism, which rises up kind of in response to all these attempts to kind of maybe... Uh, disintegrate the Bible or pull it apart or kind of, you know, figure out what else is going on in there. What are the authorship issues and so on? So Herzog is like weighing into some of this. Um, I don't, I can't remember what year this book is written, but anyway, after the early seventies. So uh, he is really fascinating because like he notes, okay, some people want to find the exact one single reading of a biblical text. And they want to argue that there's only one way to understand it. And, you know, there might be conservative Christians that might even be kind of progressive, like history obsessed Christians, but they want to find the one meaning. And he says the irony is biblical scholarship has all kinds of one singular meanings <laughs> that they are all arguing about all the time. So it's a bit of a self-defeating project. Uh, and then he also says, you know, there's kind of a futility in just trying to figure out like the pure historical conditions and then be like, you've got the key. So instead of appealing to all these weird German biblical scholars and so on, he actually appeals to Paulo Ferreira, who's a Brazilian educator, popular educator, and was interested in liberation theology as well. And he uses Ferreira in particular as his uh, way of kind of creating um, a bit of a language that he can use to talk about the parables. So here is what he says about Ferreira, and then maybe we can unpack Ferreira a bit and figure it out. He says, without invoking the entire program developed by Ferreira, it's possible to propose that Jesus used parables to present situations familiar to the rural poor, to encode the systems of oppression that controlled their lives and held them in bondage. Living in a visual culture, Ferreira used pictures as codifications. Jesus, who lived in an oral culture, used storytelling. The parable, then, was not merely a vehicle to communicate theology or ethics, but a codification designed to stimulate social analysis and to expose the contradictions between the actual situation of its hearers and the Torah of God's justice. So the parallel that Herzog is giving us here is Jesus and Paulo Freire are doing some similar things. So Paulo Freire, as I said, is this popular educator. He was really famous for doing literacy campaigns in Brazil, and he had like a whole methodology that revolved around basically going into an illiterate community and uh, not only teaching people how to read, uh, but also using the examples of their everyday life and trying to kind of create a space where they could name the world around them and even come to consciousness of their own kind of oppression and political situation. So Ferrer did that through these kind of visual exercises with images and all that kind of stuff. But the point is, Ferreira's sort of uh, mode is trying to wake people up um, using that popular education style. So Herzog says, if you want to understand what's going on when Jesus tells a parable, it's really similar to that. He's doing this kind of popular education, and because he lives in this oral culture, he's doing it orally. So it's not about teaching people to read, but it's about sort of giving this opportunity through uh, methods familiar to the people he's trying to address to figure out what's going on around them. And I think it is the coolest way I've ever heard to think about how to read parables. <laughs> way cooler than reading dusty, boring Germans who are obsessed with, like, the science of the Bible or something. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, the cool thing about this approach is that it takes the text really seriously. It takes history really seriously. But it's also, like, recognizing that what Jesus is doing is not, like, giving you a mystical explanation, but he's talking about something really specific and concrete. And I think that is fascinating and kind of liberating because like, that's never the way I've read parables before I, I, ever. Right. Because I think in like the popular understanding of parables in Christianity, we always think of them as allegories, right? The parable is always a metaphor mm -hmm. for something else. Um, you know, the, there's a, a landowner, there's a king, there's a worker, there's a vineyard, whatever. And these are all metaphors for something. And we have to kind of figure it out and, and sort of parse it out in just our way. But um, what Herzog tells us is that really what's going on here is that um, 
there the historical backdrop, right? The, that the, the fact that there are kings or landowners or vineyards or servants, those are all really important parts of the stories and not just sort of setting setting pieces. But also, like, the story itself is not something that has a – I mean, maybe there's a – there is, like, a you know, uh, an intended meaning behind them. But it's kind of like a riddle, I guess, is the way that I think about it. Um, you know, you're, you're supposed to read it and then you think about it and kind of reflect on your own situation. It's not something that's, like uh, – th- there's not, like – I don't know. There's not, like, a grand design behind it in the sense that it's supposed to tell you something about heaven necessarily, except I guess when it does. But um, <laughs> and most of them are kind of, like, riddles that make you reflect on your own situation within the world or, or uh, you know, the, the popular sort of conceptions of people in the world. And I, I think that's pretty interesting. Right. And the idea, too, that it's uh, a parable that would have made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a riddle, for sure. It's something that Jesus is offering to try to stimulate some thought and to maybe present an occasion for people to come to a conclusion on their own. But the idea is not really to confuse people yeah. or Jesus isn't playing 12-dimensional chess trying to get you to like get to the spiritual truth of something uh, weird. Instead, it's, uh, you know, he, he's just offering a, a kind of interesting way to get your gears turning. And if you had been a first century hearer of that parable. It like, it's a riddle that you would right, solve. Right. <laughs> like you wouldn't go away scratching your head for the most yeah, part. That's a good note though, right? That Jesus isn't trying to play 12 dimensional chess. Uh, Cause that's exactly how it works out in churches and Bible studies. I think a lot of places, right. I, I don't know. I'm, I've sat in Bible studies where, where we've read a parable and it's like, what does Jesus mean? It's like, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, what does he mean? <laughs> what is this all about? Mm-hmm. What does it mean that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed or whatever? I have no idea. <laughs> well, let's dive into it then. Let's talk about a parable that Herzog talks about. So I picked one out of the book that I was kind of unfamiliar with because I thought that would be a fun way to get to know it. But also, I think I picked one out that is particularly interesting to this podcast. I mean, they think they all kind of are in one way or another, but this one, I think doubly so. So in Mark chapter 12, there is a parable that at least I, I don't know, I didn't remember immediately. Um, there's a lot of them that I think I have bouncing around in my brain sometimes. This one is not one of them. Uh, Dean, were you familiar with this one? No, I couldn't remember at all when we started reading it. Well, it's in there. It's in Mark. This is Mark chapter 12. It's called the parable of the tenants. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to to collect from them some fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, and some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants, the tenants didn't, they did, sorry, spoiler, they did not respect the son. But the tenants said to one another, this is their heir, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This is then, uh, this is Jesus talking here. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken a parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left and they went away. Okay, so this is an interesting passage from Mark. And I think that, like, if you're a person who spent any time in church, any time in a Bible study trying to figure out what parables mean— I bet your brain is already turning. I bet you think you know what this parable is already about, right? Um, this isn't. This is an allegory. Jesus is the landowner. Um, you know the people that the landowner sends to collect the rents and get the fruit from the uh, the renters. You know they're prophets. The son that the landlord loved. That's Jesus. And you know it's kind of this. Um, foreboding allegory about like what will happen to Jesus and kind of like what that means sort of cosmically. And at the end, it's like, well, then the chief priests are nervous because Jesus is talking about them, that they're going to kill him. Um, And then they leave for some reason. Uh, But that's all wrong. That's all wrong. According to Herzog, that there's something (laughs) actually deeper going on here. That's actually far less complicated than the 12 dimensional chess of kind of like figuring out who God is in this story or who God isn't in the story. Um, 
Dean, do you want to talk about um, theologory? This is the the term that Herzog uses here. There's a lot of different things here going on, and as Matt said, maybe our our temptation is to figure out who who's playing which role and and where do we fit in and and where do we see ourselves in the parable. So Herzog has a cool term where he talks about uh, that that habit, maybe. So he says, in this process, one detail or character might be invested heavily with theological meaning, while the other details are ignored. The selective investment of the details of these parables might be called theologory, a kind of allegory in the making, but incomplete, inconsistent, and highly selective. And I think that is actually how I've always felt when I hear like an allegorical reading of a parable. I mean, some of them fit pretty snugly, I guess, but a lot of the time it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I can see the allegory with like this or that piece of the parable, but then there's all kinds of other characters that are completely accidental, I guess. Like they like don't really matter. It's just Jesus kind of dressing up the scene or something. Um, I had a professor in college uh, in my graduate program, Nick Ansel, who's like a brilliant Bible scholar, like one of the most creative biblical scholars I've ever read. And one of the most transformative things that he had suggested, I forget even what passage it was or something, but it was some kind of place. And I remember being like, I like don't know what to do with this particular thing. Like if God is supposed to be this character, then what does that mean for something else? And, you know, I, was, I guess I was theologically troubled by it or something. And he was like, well, why do you think that God has to be that character? Like, why is that character representative of God? And I was like, I don't know. I guess that's just what people have always said. That's obviously God and, and everybody else isn't. And he's like, well, the Bible doesn't say that. So, like, why is that person God and not this other person in the parable? And just that kind of freedom to experiment and think about it. I think it's uh, sort of recognizing that, as Herzog says, a, a theology is always, you know, an allegory in the making, but it's not quite there. There's something incomplete about it. And especially if you're trying to find like the the true spiritual meaning for your life, that incompleteness kind of eats away at you a bit. So it's good to have a term for it, theologory. That's what Herzog names it. And it's about that kind of selective picking of different things to to invest in or, or fixate on. Yeah, that's right. So Herzog goes on to explain that like that pot. Like, what if this wasn't an allegory? Right. What if this is a theology? What if there's something maybe just like more literal and like storytelling to all of this? Um, and this is, I guess, the the tension that he finds, right? We we hear this as an allegory because there's a lot of things in it that don't really make narrative sense to us. There are a bunch of quote unquote illogical elements to the story that like kind of push us toward this allegorical understanding. For example, like no father would send their son to a vineyard after his servants had been threatened or killed, even right? That would that's that seems unreasonable for them to do. And, like, no landowner would also keep sending servants if they're being, you know, killed. Like, that also seems unreasonable to do. And also, like, no tenant would seriously entertain the idea that they would, like, receive the inheritance of the land if they killed the son. Like, that seems also not to make any sense. So, you know, uh, Herzog says that all these things together, like, they we, we think that like they they're weird because it's an allegory, right? They're weird because it, it doesn't it's not supposed to make literal sense. Um, and, and they're supposed to, you know, point point towards more theological understandings of the story. Um, but uh, as Herzog goes on to point out that, like, maybe we just don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> maybe these like illogical things uh, that we see in in the. Um, in the text here are actually pretty logical, but we just, you know, we don't have the eyes to see it. Like I said, we, have, we have like these deranged, uh, 2022 brains, uh, who only know TikTok and only eat hot chip and, um, or whatever. Right. We only, that's <laughs> it. We, we don't know. We don't know about the, uh, the history of like land ownership or vineyards or whatever. And, uh, in first century Palestine, um, so that that's our problem. Right. <laughs> and instead of just like, Throwing our hands up and being like, well, it must be an allegory. Um, Herzog says we, there, there's a different way we can kind of account for these illogical elements that, that if we understand the history, they're actually not illogical at all. And they make a ton of sense. Yeah, I think that really comes to the fore when he starts breaking down what the, the material conditions around this parable are. Because it's kind of like him, okay, we don't have the eyes to see, but he's going to give you these very cool 3D glasses. <laughs> and if you look through, you'll you'll be able to get it. So, for example, he starts talking about the very idea of a vineyard. Why the setting, What what is Jesus setting up right off the bat? And he says, uh, in a really interesting way, 
The creation of a vineyard would, on economic grounds alone, have disturbed the hearers of the parable. Because land in Galilee was largely accounted for and intensely cultivated, uh, a man could acquire the land required to build a vineyard only by taking it from someone else. The most likely way he would have, at, have, he would have added the land to his holdings was through foreclosure on loans to free peasant farmers who were unable to pay off the loans because of poor harvests. So already something that you're not going to get just by yeah. reading what Jesus has to say. And, and not for your own fault, right? You, who knows about this? Nope, nobody. Yeah, you couldn't. You couldn't know. So Herzog adds a little more, saying only the very wealthy could afford to make the investment required to plant a vineyard because it would produce no crop during the four years required for the vines to mature and an unsure harvest in the fifth year, and the owner would need enough capital to pay tenants to nurture and dress the vines, which required constant care. Right. So there's like just a lot of moving parts here. The The establishment of the vineyard already is basically kind of a double injustice. Like if you were hearing this parable and you're a poor person in the first century, maybe you're a peasant farmer yourself. Um, already you're actually against the landowner. Right. <laughs> you're not looking for like where you are in the parable because you see yourself. You're the person who's like working the land. That's probably what you do. <laughs> right. So, uh, again, that's just uh, some more added features here. There's there's a class element already yeah, emerging right. in, in a parable. So Herzog like goes on to give some like pretty inside baseball, um, you know, explanation of how the economy worked of this particular time and it's wild y'all i'm so i'm here for it though it's awesome so herzog says both the vineyard and the luxury crop it produced were elements of a quote enclave economy that is the vineyard represents a commercial export enclave in the midst of large subsistence populations such economies were typically created through the expropriation of peasant lands by wealthy landowners in response to the opportunities created by increased trade the opening lines of the parable then describe the process and imply a class conflict in which the class of the man converting the land into a vineyard is creating tenants, peasants displaced from their land and hired back in some kind of sharecropping arrangement. So this is super fascinating because like you go into the parable and you hear like, well, there's a guy, he bought some land, he created a vineyard, he dug a pit, he put up a watchtower and it's like, I don't know, all that I don't care. Like, that's like my initial impulse is like, that's not important. But when you get into it, it's mm-hmm. actually the most important thing. Um, so Herzog goes on to say then that the mm-hmm. power of the elites in antiquity was centered in their power to redistribute wealth, um, which in an agrarian society always meant land, in just the manner it is being redistributed at the beginning of the parable, away from peasant land holdings into large estates. One inevitable side effect of this practice was the degradation of peasants into increasingly dependent relations as landless clients to wealthy patrons, as sharecroppers, as debt slaves, and as day laborers. Um, And then it kind of finishes out the section uh, saying, all of this is to say that the parable opens with the description of a familiar process, the takeover of peasant land and its subsequent conversion into a vineyard. No theologizing was required to make its meaning clear. Um, This is really interesting, though, because... Um, we, I, I mean, I, the tradition that I think I kind of bring to this of, of reading this allegory would just be to immediately recognize that, that in this allegory, um, the idea of there being a person who owns a vineyard that is like sending a servant that he loves, that's God, right? That's God in the story. But like pretty clearly from this mm-hmm, historical mm-hmm. background, if you're a peasant in, you know, in the time when Jesus is saying this. Uh, you would not have thought that. <laughs> the landowner is not the good guy. <laughs> the landowner is not God. I mean, let alone, I mean, uh, you know, maybe it would have been like too far, uh, a bridge too far to even consider like a, a man as sort of a stand-in for God as a theological idea or something. So like, I think what's interesting though is if you have that background and like what is happening in this story, like what could this possibly be about, right? If, if, um, if, the the historical reading tells us that like the the vineyard owner is the bad guy then like what is going on right you can't make sense of this as sort of a, a just a a, a, a theology uh, allegory or something it's it's something I think like more historical right and how weird is it too that capitalism and the church's long history with feudalism have show so shaped our imagination that you automatically yeah. assume the property owner must be God, right? The the wealthy person must be God because that's the person with the power. So, like, that's where God must be located, which is such a weird intuition, but it's one that we all just have. Um, so let's talk about the other side. Uh, Herzog goes on to say, the parable describes real social and economic conditions in Palestine where large estates owned by Gentile landlords were an affront. 
to growing nationalist sentiment represented by the zealots. In this highly charged atmosphere, the tenant's refusal to pay rent was nothing less than a prelude to murder and the forcible seizure of land by the peasantry. So there's another layer here of uh, the Jewish community is a uh, community that is, you know, living in their their territories being occupied. And so there's also the subtext that Herzog explains further that kind of tells you the landowner is from outside. And, you know, there's this backdrop of like the Maccabean revolution. There's the zealots running around. Uh, And then Herzog continues and says, peasant villagers sought only to maintain their status relative to their peers. They were not acquisitive because gaining a disproportionate amount of wealth could be accomplished only at the expense of other villagers, and honorable peasants did not wish to disadvantage their neighbors. When peasants were no longer able to maintain their level of subsistence, then they could no longer retain their status as honorable villagers. They had lost the ability to maintain their household and could no longer contribute to the ceremonial needs of the village. Having been forced beyond the narrow parameters required for their survival, they had no choice but to rebel. So on the landowner side, you have this economic logic. There's an investment of capital with the expectation of return. Five years later, uh, this person got a lucky break or they strategized around uh, uh, taking the land from these peasants and turning them into tenants. And then on the other hand, on the backside, the the peasants, the tenants now have nowhere else to go. They're, uh, you know, sucked into this dependency relationship. And there's all this other kind of political tension involved. And so it's completely in the story, you know, when you read it as maybe a, uh, a person in 2022, maybe at like a bourgeois evangelical Bible study or something, the very idea of violence is already abhorrent, right? It's kind of part of our Christian thought. Uh, you should, the people who are being violent are probably the bad guys, because why would you ever want to do that? But as Herzog is explaining, if you're hearing the story, you you already sympathize with the violence. Of course they would kill these people, right? <laughs> like, what what other choice did they have? And that is a really fascinating thing I would never have thought about reading that parable. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's so interesting because, like, what usually is interpreted is just, like, a parable, you know, pointing towards some high-minded sort of theological and metaphysical ideas is actually just about primitive accumulation. Like, <laughs> it's a it's a thing that Jesus is telling the peasants mm-hmm. because it's like, uh, it's something they know about, right? It's kind of something that's already going to get them mad and upset because they recognize this as sort of a real systemic problem. Um, and, you know, with with the subtext of, um, of peasant uprising, <laughs> pretty interesting. Okay, so Herzog goes on to say, though, that um, that right within this historical context, the parable alludes to the first and final phases of what he calls the spiral of violence, which is an idea that he's, he borrows from Don Helder Camara, which we can talk about in a minute. But it concentrates on its second phase. In short, the parable codifies the spiral of violence by describing a local peasant revolt on a great estate. This rebellion was too small to make the news or historians' records, but may have been typical of the brush fires that kept breaking out in the parched economic landscape of Galilee and Judea. Uh, And then he says, the thrill of revolt may be satisfying, but it's usually short-lived. The parable ends as abruptly as most peasant revolts. Just when the narrative appears to be gathering convincing momentum, it's stopped dead in its tracks with a question. What then will the owner or the lord of the vineyard do? The question answers itself. The officially sanctioned violence of the state, of the elites, will crush the revolt. There may have been revolts in the ancient world, but there were no revolutions. The distinction is important. Revolts are uprisings that are inevitably crushed by elites, Whereas revolutionary movements like those found in the modern world have a chance of success because they have access to weapons and a political influence. In the ancient world, the state held a virtual monopoly in all military force and technology that controls the that controls the ensured futility of peasant revolts, whatever their scope. Um, so this is super fa- fascinating because this is <laughs> this is not a parable that's actually telling you to think about God or theology. It's the one that's telling you to think about a social problem. Um, it's it's a parable that's asking you to think about revolt and its efficacy, um, and it's it's um, it, Herzog recognizes that it's it's saying something. It's kind of making an intervention into the idea of peasant revolt, not saying that it's like um, you know wrong to do or something. It's not warning against it necessarily, but it's saying that um, there's sort of a spiral of violence, right? What do you think the owner of the vineyard will do to the peasant revolt? It's 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 recognizing that there's a systemic problem with the way that like these agrarian situations work out. So what Jesus is doing is like pretty radical class analysis if you uh, if you think about it historically. 
Yeah, and maybe we can kind of unpack the spiral of violence idea as well, because it's a really interesting one. So, um, as you said, it comes from Dom Helder Camara, who is kind of like the, I don't know, one of the most famous liberation theology bishops in Brazil. He was a bishop under dictatorship and a really fascinating guy. He's famous for the phrase that you've probably heard, um, when I feed the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they're poor, they call me a communist. That's the typical Camara line. So he contributed this idea of the spiral of violence to liberation theology. It's pretty influential. And basically, well, I'll read how how Herzog summarizes it because it does a pretty good job. Um, He says there's three phases. The spiral begins in the everyday oppression and exploitation of the poor by the ruling elites. This violence is often covert and sanctioned by law, such as the hostile takeover of peasant land. Uh, More often than not, peasants simply adjust and adapt Uh, But as suggested above, even peasants have a breaking point. When their very subsistence is threatened, they will revolt. This is the second phase of the spiral of violence, and it's the phrase the parable depicts in the greatest detail. Inevitably, such rebellions or revolts are repressed through the use of force, as the final question of the parable suggests. This officially sanctioned violence defines the final phase of the spiral, which always occurs under the pretext of safeguarding public order or national security. So the idea being, uh, as you said, Matt, (laughs) what Jesus is doing is really kind of prompting a question of strategy, right? Like, um, okay, of course, the peasants uh, have a kind of material reason to rebel or or to revolt. But if the desire is to then get their subsistence back, they're not going to get that. Instead, they'll just get crushed. It will be even worse than right. them being exploited, right? <laughs> being killed. Uh, and uh, that is so wild, like to see Jesus intervening. And I think it makes a lot more sense of other things in the Bible. I think, you know, we talked during Lent about that scene in the garden where Jesus has them put their swords away. And the reading from the Gospel in Salantanami folks was exactly that, that strategically Jesus seemed to think this is a bad time for violence. Um, and, uh, to see Jesus maybe trying to figure out like, okay, is the cycle of peasants revolting in the way that like the zealots might be trying to kind of carry forward? Is that really going to get them out of it? You know, they had the failure of the Maccabean revolt and everything else. Um, maybe there has to be some other way. And as, uh, Herzog says, there's, there's also not an option for revolution, right? <laughs> the choice is not between like, revolution and uh, acquiescence the choices between getting crushed again or finding some other way of kind of getting through it and uh, that is like actually such a powerful way of trying to think through even jesus's own like strategic interventions in the first century so i don't know give me a new perspective on jesus as like a, a cool political theorist yeah yeah there's definitely something to that that is um i don't know i've never heard before i think it's really cool it makes me more excited about jesus honestly <laughs> I liked him before, but now ooh, yeah. I'm thinking a little bit harder about it. Um, okay, so Herzog rounds <laughs> rounds some of these ideas out. Um, I'm going to read these two paragraphs here, and, and maybe we can come to, come to some conclusions about it. So Herzog says that peasants resorted to violence not to usher in an ideal order of justice, which would be like you know a revolutionary situation, but instead to restore what they had recently lost. In this parable, the tenants have rebelled for the purpose of restoring their patrimonial holdings, a situation that renders their actions and motive perfectly clear, right? So, like, why were these tenants, like, killing the the servants that the landowner was sending in the first place? Doesn't that sound bizarre and weird and kind of illogical? No, it makes a lot of sense if you know the historical aspect of it. Um, and then Herzog says, this is kind of in the concluding remarks about the, um, the chapter, in light of the meaning of the land suggested here, the tenants' motives may become more understandable. They were peasants pushed over the edge of survival, and they were heirs of Yahweh's allotment of the land whose inheritance had been stolen from them. Their violent outbursts were their way of reasserting their honorable status as heirs, not the shameful act of usurpers. So um, I think, Dean, your reading makes a lot of sense, right? Jesus is, is, is not commenting on, you know, it's not about standing down. It's not about not struggling. It's not about um, about not using violence because of some kind of, like, I don't know, grand pacifistic um, ideal, but it's like a real move of strategy. Don't don't do a peasant revolt because you're not going to win. And that's a super fascinating parable because it's not about, you know, something metaphysical whatsoever. It's something like really practical (laughs) about the struggle of peasants against like um, 
uh, proto-capitalist landlords or something. And, and isn't that bonkers? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so many things that come to mind at the end of this process, right? Like, it, it makes me think of uh, Karl Marx um, had this very funny disagreement with this guy, William Wheatling, yeah. uh, who we might have talked about here and there on the show, but Wheatling was a, a really radical Christian and was also a socialist and worked with uh, Marx and Engels in um, uh, different kind of workers associations. Anyway, uh, Wheatling was a zealot. He really wanted to, like, go do a revolution <laughs> in Germany for sure. And uh, Marx, like, famously berated him <laughs> at this meeting, like, calling him a complete idiot. And uh, he got expelled from their crew as a result. And then uh, Wheatling did end up doing an extremely stupid thing in Germany, and it was a failure. And then he moved to the United States and uh, just a weird, a weird character, a very interesting character, this radical Christian guy. But uh, it's kind of a similar thing, right? Like, it's not like Marx is against revolution, but he's basically being like, it doesn't make any sense to go try to do this right now. And it's just not going right. to work. And like someone did try to do it and it did not work. So. <laughs> Funny maybe to kind of see uh, <laughs> an allegory there of, of Marx's own strategic brain. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what's cool about it, though, is that the the parable demonstrates a type of systemic thinking on Jesus's part um, that maybe we wouldn't have recognized without the historical backing. Like, um, Jesus is recognizing not just a problem. It's not just a problem that, like, uh, someone forecloses on the land of peasants and kind of steals it away. Um, and it's not just a problem that when they rise up against that person, they get murdered. It's a problem. Like the whole, the whole cycle is a problem, right? The whole thing is a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know, Jesus seems to know that <laughs> Jesus is, is laying it out there. Um, such a cool thing. It's so much more interesting and, and like applicable than, um, you know, sort of a metaphysical allegory about like who who is what in in the uh, in the metaphor or something it's just like i don't know can you imagine if something if, if a similar parable was told in your church on sunday um i don't know your pastor would be like okay so um <laughs> there are there are farmers whose land is being foreclosed upon them or something <laughs> right. like a really uh what what if church was like a really practical uh strategy session about like how to resist uh, <laughs> the wealthy from from taking over your life yeah yeah uh, I think it's interesting, too, because, you know, we were talking earlier about different ways of reading the Bible. I don't know. Maybe there are ways of, like, kind of spiritualizing a parable like this. And I think it's fine to, like, play around with it. I think I'm convinced. Herzog has me convinced. I feel like he he gave me the, the one true reading of this parable that I've always wanted and needed. Um, but nevertheless, you know, there's probably ways to play with it. But the question is always still, what's even the purpose of of doing that, like, what do you get out of it at the end? And if what you get out of spiritualizing this or that piece of it is a theologory, right? Investing in some parts and not others, a theologory that ends up being like, okay, God is the dad and Jesus is the son who gets killed. And then we are like all the sinners who are the peasants and the peasants are bad. Um, You know, that is a spiritual story that not only obscures the meaning of the text, but actually puts you on the wrong side. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like uh, the voice of God in the text, wherever you want to locate it, is is Jesus's voice really at the end of the day. Right. And what is he trying to kind of get us to see? Or maybe the voice of God in the text is actually the land itself. That's something that Herzog seems to kind of gesture toward. So I think there's probably a lot of ways to still play with it. But um, it's important maybe not to uh, it's important to avoid theologizing uh, before at least getting kind of the, the material stuff right. And then you can play with the rest yeah. of it once you kind of have a handle. Yeah, on it. I mean, um, the kind of terrifying thing about this book is I'm thinking about all the times we've done we've done the bad thing that we just said. <laughs> um, like, for example, I remember there's an episode. I couldn't even tell you which one. It was a while ago. Maybe we were talking about Jubilee or debt forgiveness. It was probably before the more recent episodes on that. But there is a parable in Matthew um, where there is a king and the king has a servant and uh, the servant has a big, big debt that he ha- he's indebted to the king. And the king says, OK, I f- I'm forgiving your debts. So there you go. And then the servant turns around and he goes to find somebody who owes him money 
Um, and he, instead of forgiving the debts like the king forgave his, he, like, beats the guy up and tells him, like, you better pay me my money, you, you dumb idiot. <laughs> and, like, I think uh, I remember, you know, our reading of that was, like, well, you should forgive people who have debts against you. And, like, isn't that a cool radical idea? And I think that it is a cool radical idea. It is a great idea to forgive people's debts who are holding debts against you. Um, but, uh, Herzog has a whole chapter about that, uh, that particular parable. And I gotta tell you, Dean, we're really off, man. We don't have it right at all. (laughs) Um, instead of it being about, uh, forgiving people's debts, it's about, um, the king is actually kind of shitty and he's, uh, he's doing something sneaky against his, uh, against his other guy here. So it's just like, it's interesting though, because, you know, we're so, uh, enculturated to think of God, like God in these parables is, is synonymous with the king because we have these like very weird skewed, um, <laughs> like ideas of what a king is where it's very different, you know, uh, given the context of, 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 you know, the time period, right? Uh, there's no way that Jesus would tell a story of a king in, you know, uh, in Palestine, uh, a place that is being occupied by Rome, and the king would be the stand-in for God. Like that's that wouldn't make sense at all, right? <laughs> if people people like peasant farmers or whatever hear Jesus talking about a king, they're like, "Oh, you mean the bad guy? I get it. No big deal." <laughs> <laughs> right. So all that to say, like, I guess we've gotten it wrong in the past, and I think that's fine. Maybe wrong isn't the right word. We have read it in a way that's more like an analogy or a metaphor, and I think that's fine. We're playing with it. We're feeling it out, and that's whatever. That's all we can do. Um, but we we did lack the historical background in the past, and and I'm not yeah. sorry for it. But I am uh, excited yeah. to learn more about it. Yeah, I think that's the thing too, right? Is I guess the two things that come to mind for me are there's some quote from Saint Augustine someplace where he says, uh, "If you want to know if you're reading the Bible right, um, the kind of the test is when you read it, do you love others more than you did before." And if you do, great, you read it right. And if you don't, you read it wrong. I think that is a great rule. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing it very badly, but uh, maybe I'm demonstrating the principle at least or carrying forward the logic, right? If you if you come out of it loving others better, good job. If you come out of it having a better uh, a better handle on strategy for fighting back against landlords, you're doing it right. (laughs) That's love. That's love. Um, (laughs) The other thing I think of is the Salantaname text because. Like they're constantly, I don't know, probably wrong yeah, about historically things. Yeah, but like they're right in a more ultimate sense, mm-hmm. and the reading that they give is actually kind of performing or repeating what Jesus is trying to do yeah. in the telling of the parables. So the key is not even necessarily to like you know find the one solution, lock yourself into it, and then correct all your pastors or whatever. But um, I guess, but you can do that. You can do that, of course. But what something like this reading from Herzog opens you up to do is maybe, uh, yeah, just have a better handle on how you can more effectively kind of keep that tradition going forward uh, with with some more stuff. But but you don't you don't need it necessarily. <laughs> you, right. Some people are just naturally good at it. Some people like Laureano and the Gospel and Solantanami, they just know what they're doing. I think that's fine. I think that's such a like a good example. Gospel and Solantanami is is great because it does get the historical stuff wrong and it doesn't end up mattering in the end. It's like whatever. Um, but what's cool about this historical reading, though, is that, like, it shifts the importance away from theology and towards how the poor would have heard it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, like, if we take really seriously what the Bible says, that the gospel is about the good news to the poor, right, then, like, I don't know, maybe that's how you have to think about it. Like, uh, it, it shifts the interpretive framework, like, that you have to hear this from a particular angle, right? Mm-hmm. And the Gospel in Sultaname figures this out in a different way, and not the historical sense, but like in the spirit of the thing or something. Mm-hmm. That there's this uh, this this angle where it's it's heard from it's it's heard in the right way to the right group of people uh, against maybe more bourgeois understandings of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty neat. So there you have it. When you read the Bible, you can read it with these three D glasses that say preferential option for the poor on it, and uh, then you'll know you'll know exactly what Jesus is saying in all his uh, extremely simple riddles. There you have it, folks. Jesus has a lot to say to you personally, and it's about how to resist landlords, and it's great. We love it. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what we heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you didn't like what we heard, you can still support us there. No big deal. <laughs> we'll take your money either way, and it's okay. Our intro music is by Mario Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. Um, if you if you want to listen to The Illogical Spoon, and I've been doing it a lot in the last few weeks, you can go to Bandcamp and search The Illogical Spoon, all one word, and uh, it's great. It's interesting music, and I like it. And you can like it, too, if you go do that thing I just said. All right. uh, We'll see you next week.
get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would have. 